loss helps us define our lives. By allowing our grief to matter, we discover our own strengths and embrace our authentic selves. Welcome to Good Grief with your host, Cheryl Jones. Get ready to be inspired, to create a deeper life, to make your time on Earth much more meaningful. Now, here is Cheryl Jones. Hello, I'm your host, Cheryl Jones, and I want to welcome you to Good Grief, where we talk each week about the transformations that can come from loss. Before we begin today, I'm pleased to announce the publication of my first novel, An Ocean Between Them. It's coming out September 1st, 2018, and it tells the story of an estranged mother and her lesbian daughter who find their way back to each other after the daughter is diagnosed with cancer. Second week in August, I'll be releasing the first chapter to anyone who joins my mailing list, so be sure and go to my website and sign up if you're not already on that list. You can find a link at the Good Grief page at Voice America, and I'm really excited to share the story. Um, it was it was a pleasure writing it, and uh, it's uh, going to be a lot of fun to to share it with people. Today, my guest is Martin Keough. Martin founded The Dancing Ground, an organization that offers conferences and symposia on gender, race, and mythology. He's produced and taught with the likes of Joseph Campbell, Robert Bly, Clarissa Pinkola Estes, Coleman Barks, and James Hillman. After attending Stanford University, Martin hitchhiked 25,000 miles through North America and spent time traveling to monasteries in Japan and Korea. In 1979, he became a Dharma teacher and director of the Empty Gate Zen Center in Berkeley, California, right, right near me. Martin was named a Fulbright Senior Specialist for his contribution to the development of the interpersonal partner dance form, Contact Improvisation. For nearly four decades, he's led master classes, teacher conferences, and intensive trainings in 32 countries spanning six continents. His writings have appeared in nine languages. He's the author of Dancing Deeper Still and the editor of Hope Beneath Our Feet, Restoring Our Place in the Natural World. After the loss of three loved ones in close succession, Martin gathered information from professionals in the bereavement field, including palliative care nurses, hospice workers, priests, and grief therapists. And this information is synthesized in as much time as it takes, which we'll be talking about in particular today. Martin lives with his family on the shores of the Salish Sea in British Columbia, and you can find him at Martin keo.com keo is spelled k-e-o-g-h.com welcome martin thank you cheryl congratulations on getting an ocean between them published i'm excited about it i i thought i should start talking about it here because of course the story is um fiction but very much about how difficult times can can lead in unexpected directions and sometimes uh-huh. even even uh, bring some healing. So I'll I'll be happy to share it w- when it comes out in just a month and uh, a month plus. Great. So, I look forward to it. Yeah. Um, so let's just start with how you came to write this book because uh, your work before this has been largely in the field of dance and 
and natural world, uh, but it was personal experience that that led you to use your talents in this direction. Could you talk a little more deeply about um, the people you lost and and what that time in your life was like for you? Uh, Certainly. And just to say, getting ready to be in this conversation with you, I just, today I had all these feelings come up going, oh my God, I'm going to have to, like, on this show, relive all those feelings of loss and just some anxiety about that. And then a wave came over me after that going, oh, I'm going to get to refeel those feelings again. And I was much more comfortable with that the uh. second time around going, oh, there's, those feelings somehow are all based on love. So, and love lost. And so it's like, oh, I get to have those feelings again. That's not such a bad thing. Yes. And I I find, um, I don't know if you do, but I find that when I revisit, which I do every week, basically, uh uh, when I, when I revisit the, it, they haven't stayed static, my feelings. They're, they're different every time I, I, I reconnect with those experiences. Do you find that? Yes. Yes, and, and also revisiting them with kind of more of the life around them than the loss around them is what I find over time changes. Yes. And so the book is called As Much Time As It Takes because these three particular losses were over 20 years ago. And for me, there were three, as you said, in very close succession. My mother um, struggled through four years with breast cancer. And so we got to see all the stages of her dealing with her cancer. And in a sense, me and the family pre-grieving her death because we knew it was coming. And especially the last year and the last month being with her in palliative care at the hospital and then all being there with her, with her hands on her when she took that last breath. Mm. And... I thought I had been through quite a bit at this point, and then my father um, had a heart attack and 36 hours later um, died. And it's interesting, both my parents were artists, they were um, professional puppeteers actually, three generations of puppeteers, and they did a lot of theater and visual art, and they lived very un... um, they didn't live by the numbers, but my father died within 18 months of my mother, which is completely statistical for people who've been over together over something like 40 years. Uh-huh. And so he slipped out the back door very quickly. And I was the executor on their estate. And so I had to go down to Mexico where their home was and take care of the estate. And I had a very close friend there, um, Grillo, Guillermina Villarreal. We all called her Grillo, which means cricket. And two weeks after I got there, well, first just to say about her, she, she was this very special human being who made a lot of people feel wanted and happy and gave people a sense of belonging. And she and I had been lovers previously, but at this point we were, I like to say we were soul friends. And Mm. I'm returning to the place that I grew up in my teen years and San Miguel de Allende and not wanting to turn into the expat community there. I really wanted to turn into the Mexican community and she wanted to be my keys for that. And two weeks after I got there, she died very suddenly in a car accident. And so, and it was amazing because when I got that phone call, I 
was standing up and my knees gave out from under me. I collapsed to the floor. And that thing um, that you hear about, is, oh, your knees giving out, that news collapsed to me. It put me right on the ground. And so here I was um, dealing with three kinds of bereavement all at once. I had three very alive sensibilities. I had that long time with my mother watching her die over all those years, feeling all the feelings in real time with her present. Then I had my father go super suddenly um, of a heart attack, in a sense, a natural way to go. And then I had this very close friend die in a tragic accident. And so I was in three kinds of bereavement all at once. And it also it I also was, it also stands out, Martin, that the person who had had um, kind of named herself as someone who was going to help you was then gone. Yes, that that really stands out too. That uh, such a uh, difference from what you two had anticipated, you know, which is another another loss when we lose our pictures of how things are going to be. Yes, and here I was changing because I had lived in the Bay Area for a couple decades, and I, in a sense, had folded up my life there to go and live in Mexico because I knew that this was going to be this process, which was going to take some years. And so I, I had left my mooring in the Bay Area, and she was, in a sense, my mooring in this new place. And so not only did I lose her, but I lost a certain mooring that I had to my life there. Though paradoxically, I'll get on about the book in a moment, um, but paradoxically, her dying, because I knew her so well, and I knew all her favorite poems and, and about her life, I ended up being the one who wrote her obituary in both English and Spanish in the paper, and her family really pulled me in because um, of how close the two of us were. And so that and her dying ended up probably pulling me into the community down there faster than if we had done it step by step of her introducing me to all the cousins and nephews and aunts and uncles, which kind of to go into the Mexican community, you, you don't become friends with somebody, you become friends with the family and the sure. friends that those families are friends with. And so initially it was like, oh, my God, I've lost it. But then in the end, her death became those keys. So that, and that the- is interesting, too, isn't it, to, to be held by people that previous to the loss haven't even been in your life or right. maybe a little bit in your life, but not to the same degree. That must have been very intense as well. It was, and, and because it's a big expat community there, there's always some suspicion of people coming from the outside because they generally leave. And so before they accept you into that weave of families and relationships there, you kind of have to show that, that you deserve to be let in and that, that you're going to be there. And the fact that I knew her so well was what allowed them to go, oh, we can trust him. Uh, He's here. Mm-hmm. Huh. And, but but weren't there were there also people that you had uh, you know you said you'd lived in the Bay Area for ten years so I picture you having a community there that 
might have been support to you had you been there and they weren't around you. Was that at all um, difficult or problematic for you? Yes, having that group of people that I would normally reach out to, and this was back when phone calls between the two countries were a dollar a minute, um, it made it very difficult to reach out to to my normal support group. Um, And so with the loss, with the being unmoored, without my normal support people around me, I reached out to the people that I met, and I was stunned at how people kept trying to cheer me up, and Mm. they kept trying to make me feel better, and um, they kept using all those cliches that are kind of hurtful for somebody who's bereaved, because it, it takes them out of what they're feeling, and it's interesting, in the middle of the book, there's this two-line page. It says, let me have my feelings now. Perspective can come later. And I think that's the best advice for people wanting to support folks who are bereaved, just especially newly bereaved. Let them have their feelings. You don't need to give them any perspective about where they're at. The feelings are enough. So... I took note, actually, of the section of your your book. You you said, I'm probably not ready to hear expressions like, everything will be okay, she'll always be with you, good thing he's out of pain. You know, there are just so many of those cliches that people say because they don't know what to say, I I feel. Right, God will give you more than you can handle, or someday you'll look back at this and think of it differently, or he's with God now. Now you can get on with your life. It's like all these cliches that say, oh, don't feel what you're feeling right now. And for me, the the strongest one was when people would say, oh, I understand. It's yeah. Great. I don't even understand everything I'm feeling. How can <laughs> you understand it? Um, and... I found that when I would hear these things, and already I was in roiling with emotion, and I would get really pissed off. And it's funny, I, I don't often have the impulse like, to want to strike somebody, but I just <laughs> noticed in myself, back off. Um, when people would say these phrases, and, and I actually think it's a compassionate instinct to want to cheer somebody up. I don't, there's nothing malicious in it. I think just most people don't know how to be around the bereaved. We live in a society where we're not taught these things. So sure. in retrospect, I, I, I actually have some compassion for the people who use those cliches. But in the moment, it was deeply painful. And my first impulse was actually out of anger. I went, nobody knows how to be around the bereaved. I'm going to write the bloody book about it. And (laughs) I sat down in the middle of all that feeling and over six weeks wrote the book. Like I popped it out really fast. And it was very healing for me to do it um, because I got to take those voices that I was hearing that was pissing me off. and, And I got to like, because I had this triple sensitivity of the three kinds of loss, I got to write from all those perspectives. So I got this book done, and I read it, and I went, oh, this is a pretty good book. 
But I realized that it, it was too much in my voice. Um, it's written in the first person as the voice of the bereaved, like talking to a friend or family member who wants to support them. And it, it lets them know all the ways um, that each person can find their own way into being supportive. So what I did is I sent the manuscript out to all kinds of people, to palliative care nurses, to priests, to psychologists who had specialties in grief, to get help to, in a sense, universalize the text, to make it much more of, of the, the voice of the bereaved, but not my voice. So yes. it became much more accessible to a lot more people by... Um, having all these different people's input and, into the book. And you, you also wove in some poetry, and it's almost time for a break, but I wonder if before the break you would share just that little short poem by Henry Nguyen. Uh, okay. Because, because it's exactly what we're talking about, isn't it? What, what people can do, <laughs> as mm-hmm. opposed to the mistakes people make. Yes, it it's interesting because I sent the book to the poet Robert Bly and he, he sent it back and said, this is a great book. You have something here, but if you want to touch people's souls, you need to add poetry to it. So I found a poem to begin each chapter and each chapter begins with um, a, a title that comes out of that poem. So the piece that you're talking about comes from the dedication and it's, it really is about how to help. And it goes like this. It's um, Henry Nguyen from his book, Out of Solitude. He says, the friend who can be silent with us in a moment of despair or confusion, who can stay with us in an hour of grief or bereavement, who can tolerate not knowing, not curing, not healing, and face with us the reality of our powerlessness, that is a friend who cares. That just strikes so deep and true for me. Uh, yeah. Isn't that true? I want to talk more yeah. about the form of the book when we get back, and um, mm-hmm. because it's because it seems like a very helpful form for people in grief to me, and and just go more deeply into that. So, listeners, we'll be back soon. But in the meantime, you can find my website and social media at the Good Grief page at Voice America, and you can find Martin Keo at www.martinkeogh.com gh.com be back soon think you've seen everything there is to see in online television let us surprise you visit voiceamerica.tv today for sports health business and more on demand 24 7 today's woman faces a stressful world when it comes to staying healthy we are bombarded by media messages with contradicting ideas about fitness and nutrition We need to keep our diet, relationships, and stress in check. It's time to get the right message and have the most fun. Join hosts Andrea Beeman, Lisa Lutan, and Michelle Fenighaus for Healthy View Radio. It's health and happiness in one show every Thursday at noon Eastern Time and 9 a.m. Pacific Time on Voice America Health & Wellness. Relationship issues? Anxious? Parenting challenges? No more. Learn how to live your best life. Tune into Straight Talk with top psychotherapist, relationship, and anxiety expert, Sandra Reich. In this program, you'll learn how to transform your challenges into effective solutions, whether it's relationships, parenting, anxiety issues, or other life traps that you struggle with. 
Sandra will show you how to change them and how to live the life of your dreams. Listen every Thursday afternoon at 6 p.m. Eastern Time and 3 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. There is a difference in health and wellness programs. There can be mainstream programs, and then there is something extra. That something extra is called tips to keep you healthy, happy, and motivated with your host, Kristen Harper. If you want to hear some behind-the-scenes talk radio when it comes to health and wellness, the why as well as the how, be sure to tune in each week. This show will inspire you to be healthy and happy for life, as well as become the best version of yourself. Listen Tuesdays at 3 p.m. Pacific Time, 6 p.m. Eastern Time on Voice America Health & Wellness. Follow the Voice America Talk Radio Network on Twitter. We're at Voice America TRN. You'll get the latest fix on what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and general happenings that you should know about at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. Now you don't have to miss anything when you're away from your home or office. Just go to twitter.com forward slash Voice America TRN or follow along with us at Voice America TRN, the Voice America Talk Radio Network. We're on the cutting edge of social media. Can you keep up? Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for the keywords Voice America. Once you are part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our timeline. Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for Voice America. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. You are listening to Good Grief with Cheryl Jones. To reach Cheryl or her guest today, please call 1 866 472 5792. That's 1 866 472 5792. You may also send an email to Cheryl Jones at weatheringgrief.com. Now, back to Good Grief. Welcome back. This is your host, Cheryl Jones, and I've been talking with Martin Keough, author of As Much Time As It Takes. And Martin, before the break, uh, we were just beginning to talk about the actual form of the book, which I found um, very good for people in grief and also people supporting them because your chapters are often a page, uh, not a, not. It, it's not over wordy, I guess I would say. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that, for me, really fits with my experience of grief anyway, that I couldn't, early in grief, I just couldn't take too many words. I hardly read it all for that reason, because um, most books have a ton of words. And I'm a word person, you might be able mm-hmm. to tell, but I just, I just couldn't do it in that particular time in my life. For me, bringing out this book was originally written as a guide for people who want to support the bereaved, um, for family, for friends, for volunteers, for people in the bereavement field. And it there's very few words on each page, so it, it's very digestible. And it turned out turns out that people who are bereaved 
take great solace in this book. And just from my understanding about who's reading it, probably more people who are bereaved read it than people who are supporting the bereaved. And Mm. I repeatedly get the feedback from folks about um, the ease of taking it in. Yes, and also also it feels like you're sort of prompting the the non-grievers, I guess, for want of a better... That, that you have to keep it simple, you have to keep things digestible, you have to keep them short. You know, to me, that's a meta message in the book. Um, don't make it complicated. <laughs> you know, yeah. it's, it's, it's small, simple things that really make a difference. The reason grievers are loving it is because uh, it's, it fits with grief, doesn't it? That Mm-hmm. That's short. And so if someone's reading the book to know how to support them, they might actually be able to do that. Um, yes. How to be I, lovingly present with a huge, not a huge amount of agenda or how to very easily take care of practical things that somebody who's deeply bereaved might be having trouble with. And then for the bereaved themselves, because it's in the first person, in all that feeling, it might be hard for somebody who it might be feeling overwhelmed by the emotion or the numbness they're going through to be able to articulate what they're feeling. And because it's in the first person, they're actually giving themselves language to understand their experience and also possibly language to speak to the people around them to be able to like set a limit or ask for what they actually need. And, and, Often that is, you know, please don't pull me out of my experience right now. Um, I don't need right. small talk. Or, you know, if I'm going into gallows humor, follow me in because that's how I'm grieving. <laughs> yes. Oh, thank God for gallows humor as far as I'm concerned. <laughs> I lived on it during during the period of my wife's illness in particular. I mean, I, I never had any interest in in humor, actually, too much uh-huh. before that. But Gallo's humor was so comforting. Uh, it, it kind of gave you some, some, I don't know. It was a little bit fierce or a little bit, you can't take me down, I guess. Yes. It, it's so funny. In the book where I talk about Gallo's humor, I, I put a little asterisk. And it, at the bottom it says, a man who'd been married 52 years in a, who was in a bereavement support group said this, and it was actually my father who said it. Um, after my mother died, he was, she died in Toronto, and he was flying back to Mexico with her ashes. And he was, like, concerned, well, what happens if customs opens up the urn with the ashes? And he said, I'm going to have to say, get your hands off my wife's ash. Um, as his <laughs> bit of gallows humor. <laughs> That's pretty good, huh? <laughs> was your dad a funny guy in general, or was that unusual? Yes. No, he was a real jester, and then that was definitely how he dealt with strong feelings, was through humor and puns, and so this was par for the course for him, and he was clearly, that was him dealing with his emotion in that moment. There are things, too, that can be said sometimes humorously that you just can't figure out to say uh, without humor, I've noticed. Um, 
I think it's got a lot of really profound uses. That was a very good use of it. Um, I wonder how they would have reacted. You said you and Deb used a lot of humor in those years when when she was dying. Joanne, yeah, my first wife. My my uh, second wife, wife Deb, is very much alive. (laughs) Okay, good. I'm glad (laughs) to have uh, that clear. But interestingly, uh, my mother-in-law just died in February, and I've noticed a return somewhat to, you know, we're we're making those kind of jokes more than usual. Um here and there, you know, think making fun of things she would have not liked or, you know, just, and I think it's a way to keep the person present as well sometimes, especially a funny person. Mm-hmm. Um, so were you with your dad a lot through his grief? How was, uh, you know, my... Uh, my father died first, suddenly, and my mother didn't die for another four years or so. So she defied mm-hmm. the, the statistics a bit there. Uh, but I found when when my father died, um, I wasn't trying to, I grieved, but I found most of my focus was then on my mother. Mm-hmm. Uh, and when she died... It was actually uh, uh, a big grief time about my dad as well, uh, as if there was something kind of, I, I don't know if oh, it was waiting. because they were so close and so in a way he died more than, I, I haven't completely figured it out, but it's true that it was sort of held uh, a bit until they were both gone, and I wondered what your experience was of because you, you lost them quite close together, um, so it would be somewhat different, I imagine. Yes, and and again, my mother died first after the four years, and so there was a way in which we were all grieving it in advance, and my brother and sister and I noticed that. Um, our father really, he needed to get physical. And so we repeatedly, there was a, a tennis instructor that he liked to work with. And we kept pooling our money to buy him gift certificates to work with this tennis instructor because just for him to get out there and hit that ball and get sweaty and move in the sun um, allowed him to because he he was having a very difficult time entering the feelings. And he he was somebody who smoked a cigar 24-7 pretty much. And he would kind of sit there behind his cigar and really clench it. And Mm. we were going, "How, how can we draw him into the feeling? How can we respect where he's at? But we realized that just what he needed was... A, a strong physicality. And so when he came back from those tennis lessons, he was much more fluid in his feeling and much more able to be with our dying mother and with, with us, with his kids. He kind of needed the yeah. outlet of it. Yeah. But also it's interesting yeah. to me that you've um, had a and professional and I'm sure personal interest in the power of of nature and reconnecting with the the outside 
Um, and I wonder if that impacted your sense that that might help him as well to be outside oh, in the out sun. And, you know, I, I'm not sure that crossed my mind then. I know that I headed out a lot into the forest for my own um, bereavement and my own tears because my tears just flow more freely either in a men's group or in the forest in those two places is where I kind of I can go to the depths of my feeling huh. that that somehow I imagine that connected uh, uh, you know the people the people I know who've been in really wonderful deep men's groups there's just sort of a sense of, um, you know, I could connect it in my head with the outdoors, too. I, I don't know how to explain that, but um, sometimes when I've had that described to me, it actually happened outdoors, so that might be part of it. But um, so you, though, it's an interesting connection that those are two places that you're kind of able to be with your own feelings and your own depth. Yes, I don't know. More easily. How- I don't know how common it is, but one-on-one, if I'm with a woman or with a man, I, I can go fairly deep into feeling. But if I'm in a group, it's much easier if it's a group of men than a mixed group. That I somehow allow myself to, to touch down more, to go more into tears. And I've been in a couple of long-term men's groups, one of which just started after I arrived in Mexico, and that group is still going 23 years later. Um, And so being in a group that has seen a lot of each other's history of marriages and children and divorces and deaths, and um, there's something so... It's okay to not hide in that place. Mm. And... That can mean coming in and saying, I'm feeling completely numb around what's going on right now, or I'm feeling completely irritated or angry or overwhelmed. Um, I'm so full of tears. All I need to do right now is cry. And for me, I know, and I imagine that for a lot of people, being in a single gender group is really helpful in this way. Though the whole definition of gender is becoming so much less binary and so much more spherical right now. It's amazing how rich it's becoming. And I don't know (laughs) what to do with it all. It was complicated enough when it was binary. (laughs) (laughs) That's another show. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) For sure. But um, you're talking about a life experience of finding uh, places where you are able to to open up and that and I I would imagine that speaks to um you know kind of socialization and how we're socialized to act as men or women and but it's interesting to me the idea that you know maybe women don't see a certain part of men that actually does happen with other men uh, mm-hmm. possibly um, obviously uh, it's not an experience I would know about so that's very interesting um, I don't want to get out of the second uh, segment here without that beautiful Pablo Neruda poem that is in your book um, and I think 
what what it made me think of, and I'll have you read it in a second, is just uh, something that I thought of a lot when I was grieving that that the world kept going on. Uh, some that was a little insulting at the beginning <laughs> of mm-hmm. my grief. You know, how can the work world just like act like nothing happened? <laughs> but I think and eventually it was a bit comforting. And that's what this poem made me think about. Would you like to share that? Sure. This this falls into that category of, oh, my God, these feelings, it will never change. I'll never climb out of this. Um, and it's in the chapter titled, It Seemed to Me Impossible. And this is another um, poem translated by Robert Bly. Um, and it's published, Nerida says, I sat in the garden, spattered by the great drops of winter, and it seemed to me impossible that beneath all that sadness, that crumbled solitude, the roots were still at work with no one to encourage them. I sort of hear to that two impossible. ways, too, that that it's it's uh, things are going to keep we don't have to kind of make things happen in grief we could we could just let ourselves be for a while and things will keep happening without us for that period but also hard hard to understand that that i sat in the garden so our life is going on all around us and all of it the beauty the color of it but here we are in all that sadness and all that crumbled solitude and yet Things are going on. All the time. Yeah. When we, you know, we're, we're getting pretty close to our second break. And uh, I, I always invite conversation about long-term grief when I'm sitting with someone who uh, has had some kind of transformative experience with grief that was quite a long time ago my wife died in 1995 you're saying these losses were about 20 years ago so I'd love to uh, see what you think about the how grief has then affected what's happened in your life since that time uh, because I think yeah. uh, I, I see you know whatever we're talking about grief loss as as lifelong it doesn't go go anywhere <laughs> you know and it continues uh-huh. we, we go on from there to somewhere and I'm just curious how it's affected you uh, in in your life since then so let's talk about okay. that when we come back and okay. listeners you can go to weatheringgrief.com that's my website you can go to the Good Reef host page and you can find Martin Keogh at www.martinkeogh.com K-E-O-G-H dot com. Back after the break. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Ready to transform your health and your world? 
Join host Melissa Alexander for Insight Living with Vitality. Melissa and her guests go behind the scenes on what it takes for practitioners and clients to transform themselves and others. She provides insight to medical procedural breakthroughs, available product resources, and explains lifestyle choices designed to improve and expand your vitality. It's time to get rid of that baggage, remove those blockages, and prevent buildup from hindering your progress in life. Tune in every Monday at 10 a.m. Eastern Time, 7 a.m. Pacific time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Healthcare has been a major part of news stories today with one thing that has been consistent, inconsistency. Both healthcare providers and patients have to work around and get used to a constantly changing set of rules and issues. Nurses have historically been left out of this decision-making. Listen to Once a Nurse, Always a Nurse, exploring the world of nursing with host Leanne Meyer. Health professionals, we invite you to share your ideas and experiences while listening to experts in various areas of nursing. Listen Mondays at 1 p.m. Eastern, 10 a.m. Pacific on Voice America Health & Wellness. Explore the power of natural healing with Howard Strauss. Join us each week for an informative program that will help you learn effective healing methods using natural remedies. Howard's guests include top researchers, authors, and experts who will share their views on a variety of natural products and healing methods that really work. Tune in to The Power of Natural Healing with Howard Strauss, Mondays at 11 a.m. Pacific Time, 2 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Health & Wellness Channel. We're making it easier to listen to the Voice America Talk Radio Network wherever you go. In addition to listening live, you can check out information about your favorite talk show hosts, discover new talk show personalities, add shows to your list of favorites, and listen to all of our show archives on demand. All from your iOS, Amazon Kindle, or Android device. Download it from the Apple App Store, Amazon, or Google Play, and get ready to tune in. The Voice America mobile app, powered by Aircast. Opinions, options, answers. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. You are listening to Good Grief with Cheryl Jones. To reach Cheryl or her guest today, please call 1 866 472 5792. That's 1 866 472 5792. You may also send an email to Cheryl Jones at weatheringgrief.com. Now, back to Good Grief. Welcome back. I'm here with Martin Keough, author of As Much Time as It Takes, a book uh, giving some some helpful guidance about how to support someone in grief. And, of course, those those kinds of um, books are always welcomed by grieving people too. Um, and before the break, Martin, I was I was mentioning that I'd really like to talk about uh, the long term of your grief, how you feel that's impacted your life going forward from um, from that point. You know, for myself, <laughs> there's almost nothing that doesn't. I guess everything in my life sort of relates to that time doing this show, mm-hmm. the kind of work I do, the book I wrote, you know, it's all very, very connected to that particular time in my life. And I feel grateful about that, actually, because I like my life. <laughs> but <That's good>. um, <laughs> but I wondered, I wondered uh, you know, what you might think about that. 
has did that those experiences impact you going forward? The title of the book is "As Much Time as It Takes," and this idea that grieving will take however long it's going to take, and so that implies an arc of time that might be long or short. I feel like there's a lot of books on bereavement. And I think what happens is people have somebody close to them die. And it's such a strong feeling that they're, they want to then go and write about it. And there's a lot of good books out there. I think I have one of the best titles actually. Um, (laughs) But (laughs) so in a way that it changed me, It's really interesting because when I look at my mother and father, John and Linda Keough, if they could have each written their death scripts, they each died the way they would have written their own scripts. So my mother, who had this insatiable desire to know that she was loved, um, she ended up having this four years of, of being sick and people really rallying to her, and especially the last year. And in the last couple months, I think she was three months in the palliative care unit, and a couple weeks she was in a coma at the end. But with all these people around her, filling her with love, she, in a sense, on her deathbed, she got it. There is Uh, enough love. I mm. am loved. Mm. And if she could have written her script, that's how she would have written it, that I will finally get the message in life that I am loved. My father, his whole, as long as I was in his life, said, I don't want to end up in a hospital connected to a whole bunch of tubes and and go a slow death. And he, in a sense, got exactly what he wanted. He slipped out the back door without a lot of drama, a lot of people around him. He just slipped out. Now, Grillo, I don't think um, she was the one who died in the car accident. I don't think that was her script. But for me, looking at my parents, it just, it makes me go, huh, in a sense, we all have some script of our own death. And it's really allowed me in the couple decades since, in a sense, to keep oh, how do I say this, some semblance of the reality of death nearby. And it has allowed me, um, through all that feeling, the well of feeling that came from the bereavement, but then also just seeing that piece of my parents' scripts actually getting lived out in how they died, it's allowed me to live a little bit more fully in each moment. Mm -hmm. So I think if I could say there's one thing that is coming out of the long-term bereavement, it's it's that more um, of a, a an appetite for life. That's interesting too, because you were obviously, I think of of meditation as as a way into being in the present moment. So you were not new to that, uh, because you'd already done that. Yes been a meditation mm-hmm. teacher and so but in some way facing death or experiencing death deepened that is that what I'm hearing yes and, and it's interesting how many people who do like a very active spiritual practice are then get attracted to doing hospice work bereavement work to to get closer to that reality 
because I, I think it does being near that makes us go, oh, this is very finite, our time here. And if it is finite, I want my relationships, I want nothing unsaid, I want to be very fully in how I'm living this life. For sure. I remember, I don't remember um, which exact sect this was. Uh, I think maybe a Tibetan sect where the the um, children who were named to be um, leaders in that community, uh, the first thing they did was work with dying people. Uh, and the, right. the thought the thought being that once you do that, you, you're, that's it, right? That's <laughs> kind of the bottom line. I think that's interesting because it certainly was true for me that certain fears I had about living or ways I was not fully uh, awake to my life, I guess, that really, really did change. And it has remained different than it was before that. Another uh, piece that happened for me is I'm kind of a skeptical person, and I I like things to have proof. And a few things happened around my mother's death, especially um, in one of her sister's house, a clock stopped right at the moment that she died. Um, My mother had these little angels she had given to all of her sisters, and they all had them hanging on their walls, and they all fell off the walls um, the night that she died. And it was like all these completely inexplicable things were happening. And I had this experience. Well, first, when we were with her when she died, I've had the good fortune to assist at two births and um, home births and to be at the birth of my own son. And the sense that I had in all three of those was that the moment that first breath was taken, somehow the light in the room changed. Mm-hmm. And when my mother died, it was this very similar light that it seemed to come into the room. The moment she stepped out, the light changed. And it was so similar as that moment when all of those babies took their first breath. But I had this experience... I was, we had a memorial for my mother in Canada, and then I was flying down to Mexico for the memorial there, and the, my stop was in San Francisco, and I had some time in the San Francisco airport, and suddenly over the intercom, this message ca- came that said, Martin Keogh, please pick up a white courtesy telephone. Martin Keogh, pick up the white courtesy telephone. Oh, my goodness. And I was, <laughs> Nobody knows I'm here. What, what, what's... Who could be calling me? And I went and I picked up the white courtesy telephone. I said, hi, this is Martin Keogh. And they said, oh, this is Martin Keogh. Good, because uh, Linda Keogh called us to say she will meet you at the U.S. Air baggage claim. And Linda Keogh's my mom. And I said, no, that's impossible. And they said, well, no, she just called us and said for you to meet her at the U.S. Air baggage claim. And I said, that's impossible. She's dead. And they said, well, that's the message we got. And they hung up. Oh, my <laughs> gosh. <laughs> I was laughing and going, okay, I, I looked at the map. Of course I had to go. And U.S. baggage, U.S. Air baggage claim was at the other end of the bloody airport. So I'm running uh, through the airport with, with my like little day bag on. And I'm just laughing all the way there going, what is this? And I go there and it's 
there's nobody else there, but there's this big symbol for U.S. Air, and right next to it is Air Canada's symbol, where the baggage carousels are. And there's nobody there. And in fact, it's kind of dark. And I'm looking at this and going, oh, well, maybe my mother's passing via Air Canada through U.S. Air down to Mexico to join us there. <laughs> and it's completely That's... inexplicable. Nobody knew I was passing through that airport, and yet that message was what came to me. That's and amazing. So, through their deaths, um, oh, and then I'll, I'll say something that happened around Grio as well. It, it made me a little bit less skeptical about the potential of other worlds existing right next to this world. Amen to that. <laughs> I agree with yeah. that. <laughs> and yeah, that's, that's sometimes way, hard to talk about to people who haven't experienced it, too, isn't it? Yes, it is. And, and I can tell that story kind of from my own place of, of skepticism, so people, I think, can take it in a little bit more, um, because for me, it just makes me laugh. In, in Mexico, when Grillo died, many people had said to me, oh, Mexicans have a different relationship to death. They're so much more accepting of it. But that was not my experience. My experience was just like in the United States, just like in Canada. There was a lot of people trying to deflect the feeling and get me out of the feeling. But then Day of the Dead came. And a whole bunch of Grillo's friends and myself got together and we built an ofrenda um, and a shrine to Grillo. And this is what they do down there, where they get the person who's died all their favorite things in a little skull with their name on it. Grillo really loved Coca-Cola, so this ofrenda had a lot of bottles of Coke and her favorite kind of tacos were there and her favorite chilies. And there's the marigold flowers that are always part of it and the candles. And it's very bright and beautiful. But as we were building the ofrenda, which took hours, we were, of course, telling stories of Grillo. And the whole idea that they say of Day of the Dead is that the veils between the worlds get thin and you can communicate with the dead. And what my experience was there is we built the ofrenda, and as we told stories of her, there was a way in which we incorporated her into the room. We gave her body by our feeling and our stories, and there was a way in which it was like she was with us. Uh. And, and that was when I understood that part of, of people speaking about Mexican culture and how, oh, you know, they, they have, a, in a sense, a better relationship with the dead. Maybe not with the bereavement and the feelings about it, but they have a relationship with the dead. Still, and- still alive, yes, yes. Guess what? We have run out of time. There are so many other really? things I wanted to talk about with you, okay. but um, we've come to the end. Um, I want to thank you so much for being with me. I've really enjoyed the conversation. As have I. Thank you so much for having me. It's an Absolutely. honor to be on your show. And, and to find out more, because uh, there's so much more to know, just go to martinkeo.com. And next week, I'll have Elizabeth Fournier to talk about her book, The Green Burial Book, Everything You Need to Know to Plan an Affordable, Environmentally Friendly Burial. This has been Good Grief with Cheryl Jones. I look forward to being with you again next week for another meaningful conversation. Thank you so much for joining us for Good Grief. 
Please come back next Wednesday at 5 p.m. Eastern Time, 2 p.m. Pacific Time for another edition featuring your host, Cheryl Jones, on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Have a meaningful week. Abre mi corazón.